Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed there. Chapter 19 begins by informing us that Jesus is going to make his way from the Galilee region down toward, down southward, down toward, uh, and alongside of, as it says there, the Jordan River. Now, I mentioned to you in the past that there were pretty much three regions of uh, Israel at the time of Christ. Pretty much today, there's pretty much three reasons of Israel. And so, in the extreme north, you have Galilee, which is basically centered around or on the banks of uh, the Galilee uh, Sea. Uh, Then you have Samaria, which is sort of in the northern portion, the central part of of, uh, Israel. And then finally you have Judea toward the bottom. So hopefully the maps give you a rough idea of where those particular places are located. Now Jesus' ministry was primarily in the Galilee. You might not get that as you read through the Gospels because not everything that he did in the Galilee and not everything he did in life is recorded for us in the Gospels. And, and in some ways, equal press is given both to the things that happened down in Jerusalem and the things that happened up in the north of Galilee. But the reality is the vast majority of time, Jesus was up in the region of the Galilee, and he would go down to uh, Jerusalem and other places like that at the feast and things like that. And, and so things would happen there. But if you look again at verse 1, it's, we see that Jesus is leaving his home region, and he is heading south into Judea, beyond the Jordan. An alternative translation of beyond the Jordan could be beside the Jordan, and that's probably the more proper translation. The Jordan refers to the Jordan River, and the Jordan River, it formed the eastern border of the nation of Israel, and so a common travel route for the Jews that would be making their way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, which all Jewish males were required to do three times a year for the feast, a common travel route would be to walk alongside of or on the edges of the Jordan River. And so I think that's what's happening where it says that Jesus, he went down from Galilee and entered the region beside the Jordan. He's making his way down there. And we know that the purpose of his trip, we can just deduce it, that the purpose of his trip is to head to Jerusalem. Because it's like if you're taking 195, where are you going? You're going to the beach in the summer. You know, that's where it takes you. And so same, similar idea, he's making his way down from Galilee, and he's heading to Jerusalem. Now you say, Greg, I don't agree with your uh, proposition there. I don't think that that's where he's headed. He's headed somewhere differently. Well, then turn to Matthew 20, and I'll show you, because I looked at it, and you didn't get a chance to look at it. And so I will look, show you. Matthew 20, verse 17, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And so Jesus will never be in Galilee again during his earthly ministry. He's leaving Galilee, he's heading down, he takes a stop there beside the Jordan, and then in chapter 20, no other locations in chapter 20, he's going to go to Jerusalem. Now, of course, you might see that, and it says up to Jerusalem. He's coming down from Galilee. How can he be going up to Jerusalem? Jerusalem is elevated, even if you go there, well, obviously, it hasn't changed, the topography hasn't changed, but it's pretty neat. If you get a high hotel room, you're up in the clouds in Jerusalem because the city itself is up. And everybody that goes to Jerusalem has to go up the mountain, if you will, to get to Jerusalem. So it's always referred to as going up to Jerusalem, even if they're coming down, as we might say it, from Galilee. And so, anyhow, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Now, you might read that relatively quickly, and you're like, okay, he's on a trip. But I would suggest to you there's a bit of sobriety in in Jesus as he's packing up and leaving Galilee because this is going to be as I just said a moment ago the last time pre-resurrection that Jesus will actually be in the region of Galilee so this will be the last time that he sees familiar family friends or friends neighbors and that sort of thing it'll be the last time he walked on the edges of the Galilee and its beautiful waters and not only that not only what he's leaving behind but he's making his way to Jerusalem. And he knows what lies ahead of him. Betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, those things. So I imagine there's a bit of sobriety that Jesus has. He says, all right, guys, come on, we're leaving. Now Matthew continues, and he tells us, as he enters this region, large crowds begin to follow Jesus. Verse 2 says, large crowds followed him, and he healed them 
there. Now, that's not an unusual experience for large crowds to press in on the Lord. We've seen plenty of examples of it. I suspect that this crowd is going to be even larger than some of the other crowds because Jesus is coming into a region where he's known, but where he doesn't commonly uh, visit or frequent. And so people, this is their one chance to come out and see the Lord. And so folks are coming out uh, to see him, no doubt, in great numbers and no doubt with a sense of urgency. The healer is here, and he may never be here again. And so let's get out there and let's go see him. Now Jesus' response is one that I appreciate. Notice verse 2, it just simply says, and he healed them there. So despite the fact that he was leaving home for the last time, despite the fact that he was looking forward to walking toward a cross, Jesus responds graciously to the crowd of people, and he begins to heal the people that had come to him from that region. And I think that's significant, because sometimes we have our own things going on in our own lives, Jesus demonstrates here, and yet Jesus looks past those things, and he looks at the needs of those that are in front of him. Well, you have people desperate for healing, Unfortunately, they're not the only ones that come to the Lord, as we see in verse 3. Others begin making their way to the Lord as well, and this time it's a group of Pharisees. And they're going to make their way to him throughout that region. Let me read the account. Verse 3 says, Now the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, mo- let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Once again, Jesus has to deal with a bunch of uh, religious leaders who don't like him and are just looking for uh, ways to stir up trouble for him. If you look at verse 3, it says that they come to test him. Now, these are not sincere people that are coming with a sincere question to find out the answer from Jesus, but rather it's a group of cynics that have dreamed up what they believe will be the ultimate gotcha question for Jesus. And the question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now we know that they're not interested in learning the answer because as soon as Jesus gives them an answer, they come right back at him with a, yeah, but what about this? And one of these sorts of things. So they don't really want to know what what their goal is is to set Jesus up and hopefully discredit him among the people. As we've already seen a number of times in our study of the book of Matthew, Jesus, though, is ready for their schemes. And so he takes this question that was designed to get them, and he turns it back on them, if you will. They're trying to trip him up, and he uses it really to trip them up. And so let's look a little more closely at the interaction. Again, we see in verse 3, they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Now, Jesus responds, doesn't really answer that question, but he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Then, addressing the specific question, he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Some of your versions say, let not man put asunder. If you ever go to a wedding, and at the end of the ceremony, the the pastor or whomever will say, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And you're like, amen. And then you're like, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds really good. All right, put asunder, separate. And so here Jesus says, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, he doesn't really answer their question. Their question is, what is lawful according to the law of Moses? Jesus answers instead. He really doesn't address the law of Moses initially. Instead, he answers according to the heart of God. And there's a difference between the two. God's heart is that a husband and wife would never divorce. That's God's heart. In another place in Scripture, it says that God hates divorce. So God's heart is that a husband and wife would never divorce because, as Jesus says, the two 
shall become one flesh. And again, he says, and they are no longer two, but one flesh. And to tear that one flesh apart is going to be very painful and cause some great damage. And the Lord knows that. Maybe you've seen the demonstration. You take two pieces of construction paper and you glue them together and you really make sure that they're together and you let them dry. And now they're all dried. And that's supposed to symbolize a a marriage bond of two people that have come together and they've become one. Then you try to tear those two pieces of paper apart where the glue is completely dried. And as you do so, inevitably, you're going to tear pieces of both pieces of paper, of construction paper. And that picture is designed to show that they too have become one and what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. Now, there may be a provision in the law of Moses for divorce, and Jesus is going to go on to address that, but that doesn't mean that it's God's heart or God's ideal. God's heart, the ideal, is that what he has joined together, no one would separate. Now, predictably, the inquisitors here, this group of insincere people, they come back at Jesus and they say immediately, well, then why did Moses give us instructions on divorce? Why did Moses require that a husband present his wife with a certificate of divorce if divorce is not allowed to happen? Is there a question there? Marriage was and was not highly regarded by the Jewish people. And I'll explain what I mean by that. It was highly regarded by the Jewish people, by the Jewish men in particular, because they expected that every Jewish male would hit a certain age and should get married, that it was their obligation, it was their duty to get married and to have offspring and thus obey the commandment to be fruitful and fill the earth. And so in that sense, it was at a very high place in Jewish society. But at the same time, marriage wasn't held in high regard among various teachers and religious leaders, And that's demonstrated by the fact that they invented all sorts of reasons as to why a man could put away his wife and instead marry another person. Now, there were some Jewish rabbis in the first century that held to a very high view of marriage. But the more popular teaching of the day presented a very low view of marriage and divorce, saying that divorce was pretty much possible for just about anything. Here are some reasons some of the most popular teachers in that day, Hillel, for instance, is one, suggested for why divorce was acceptable. Hillel, Rabbi Hillel said, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. Didn't do a good job on the dinner. I know, isn't it horrible? It's terrible. We're hearing a little. Number two, another one I should say. A man could divorce his wife if she went about with unbound hair. The idea being didn't clean herself up to go out in public. Number three, Saturday morning wives, we'd have trouble. A lot of women would just run out and <laughs> moving on. A man could divorce his wife if she spoke disrespectfully of his parents in his presence. She could say anything she wanted outside of his presence, but in his presence. Uh, number one, a man could divorce his wife if she was a brawling woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. Okay? But this one I think really... I I think they're all sad, but this one here was suggested that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman whom he liked better and considered more beautiful, that he could. And this is the religious leaders granting permission to the members of their congregation, so to speak. And, And my question is, with standards like that, why have standards at all? Just basically say, well, do whatever you want to do, because that's what you want to do anyway. You're looking for a reason to get out of your marriage when no reason should exist for you. The religious leaders now are trying to get Jesus to side with one interpretation, the real strict one that said, no, there's no place for divorce, and the very loose one that says just about any reason is acceptable. What they're saying to him is, so tell us, Jesus, what school of thought are you of? Are you from this school of thought or are you from that school of thought on the issue of divorce? And Jesus responds by saying, basically saying this, and I'll show you how I get to this. He says, look, I'm not interested in various schools of thought. I don't care what these people say and what those people say. I'm interested in what the scripture says. And so notice that's how he begins his response. He says to them, have you not read? 
and then he's going to go in, and he's not talking about s- some local bookstore or whatever, and I just picked up a book off the shelf and read something. Have you not read the scriptures is what he's saying to them. Now that statement in and of itself is offensive to these religious leaders because they had convinced themselves they were experts on the scriptures. They had gone to all the schooling, and they're the ones that, of course, we've read the scripture. You're some itinerant preacher who really is a carpenter. How dare you ask us that? And so Jesus, though, he says, have you not read that he who created them, God who created them from beginning, made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Have you not read? And then he begins to quote for them the scripture. Jesus's guide was not what some famous rabbi taught, but what the scripture taught. That would be the source from which he would formulate his opinion, his doctrine, and his practices. And I believe it should be our source of, as well, our source of doctrine and practice as well. The scriptures is an example. As I interact with other believers from from different church backgrounds, so to speak, not Calvary Chapel people or whatever, sometimes people will try to get a read on me which is not an easy thing to do. But sometimes they'll try and look at me and try and figure me out. And the easiest way to figure me out, they'll say something to this effect. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminianist? Have you heard those terms? I don't know if you have. Okay, apparently not. John Calvin, Bill Arminian, I don't know what his first name was, or whatever. Whoever the Arminian guy, whatever his first name was. But these guys have taken kind of differing views on the way that God works, particularly with salvation and free will and election and issues like that. And they've pretty much, camps have developed within Christianity between those that find themselves pulled toward the thinking of John Calvin and those that find themselves pulled toward the thinking of Arminian. And so people will say, are you a Calvinist or an Arminianist? And here's my honest answer, and I'm not being a jerk and I'm not trying to be funny, is it really is, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, how could you be a pastor if you don't know? I don't follow Calvin, and I don't follow Arminian. I'll tell you what. You ask me questions, I'll answer them, and then you tell me if I'm a Calvinist or an Arminianist. Because, quite frankly, I've spent 25 years, 30 years, however it's long being a Christian, not reading books about other people's theology, but just trying to read the Scripture and understand it from the Scripture. And that's how I formed my theology. So you tell me if I'm a Calvinist or Arminius, and I, and I believe that's what the Lord would have us to do. I'm not against reading the works of Calvin or other people, but I want to read those works and see how they match up with the Scripture, not try to make the Scripture match up with those works. Does that make sense? And so that's my objective. hope it's yours as well. I think that's what Jesus modeled for us here, saying I'm not interested in other schools of thought. Have you not read? He brings them back to the Scripture. Now what's interesting is both sides of this debate, this, these schools of thoughts th- that are out there, I'm talking back to divorce right now, both sides of these, they would go back to the same Bible verse for defense of their position. And so where it says in verse 7 where they say, well, then, did, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's Matthew 19.7. They're quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24.1. And Deuteronomy 24.1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of her house. Why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? Both sides of the issue debated this verse vigorously. What does this verse mean? And the particular phrase that they were looking at was the phrase there in my version that reads, he has found some indecency in her. Some versions say he has found some uncleanness in her. Now those with a lax view of marriage and divorce said that that phrase, some sort of indecency, could mean just about anything. I no longer think you're pretty anymore, so here's your certificate of divorce. I have found an indecency in you. Those with the stricter view of marriage and divorce believe that it, it only applied to instances in which the wife was sexually unfaithful and vice versa. And only in those instances could a certificate of divorce be issued. And that's the view that Jesus takes. 
So he's not necessarily lining himself up with the school of thought. He's lining himself up with the scripture because they have lined themselves up with the scripture. And so in verse 9, notice what Jesus says of Matthew 19. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus held the more strict understanding of the Deuteronomy passage primarily because the meaning of the word, which is translated indecency in the ESV, it's an indecency which has to do with nakedness, impurity, or indecent and improper behavior while in that condition, while in that nakedness. It's a term which has to do with sexual morality. And in the context of marriage, if we're talking about sexual morality, we're talking about adultery. And so Jesus then in verse 9 says, this is my view on the scripture. It's not just talking about any old indecency that you could apply anything to. We're talking about sexual sin, adultery. It has nothing to do with burning the toast or being too loud and boisterous or just because the husband has grown tired of his wife. It has to do with sexual sin. And so these guys then, they come to Jesus and they're trying to get him to either affirm the popular but wrong biblical view or to go against sort of the masses, affirm the biblical view and lose a lot of popular support. And Jesus doesn't buckle. And he gives a solid answer to the question. Now, before we move on, I think there's some things we can learn about Jesus' view of marriage and divorce from this passage. And again, Jesus didn't set out and say, all right, guys, today we're going to do a quick thing on marriage and divorce, a quick seminar. He's really just answering the question. But I think we learned some things about his view on these two issues. The first thing that we see is this. And it's sort of just an aside in the passage. And frankly, if I was teaching this passage 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I probably wouldn't even mention it. But I'll I'll bring up the first one, and that is that Jesus' understanding is that marriage is between a man and a woman. Notice what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so though our culture may be trending toward all sorts of other combinations of individuals and even groupings of individuals, Jesus makes clear that marriage was intended to between be between one man and one woman. Second thing we learn about marriage and divorce in the passage is the high place that such a relationship must take in a person's life or in two people's lives. Verse 5, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In premarital counseling, we will refer to this as leaving and cleaving. And the idea being that this relationship has now become, the married relationship has now become the most important relationship that a person can have. It's a more important relationship than the natural bond even that a person might possess with their mother or with their father. It's the most important relationship that a person can have. The marriage relationship is to be considered sacred. And by that, what I mean is holy, distinct, set apart, different from every other relationship. And as such, it should be guarded and it should be nurtured. Second thing we learn from the Lord. Third thing that I think we can glean from this passage is the sacredness of marriage and that nothing should break the bond of marriage except sexual immorality or adultery. Jesus says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Marriage was never intended to be some loose contract that could come to an end whenever one or both parties had decided that they were going to move on. Or remember that movie from when I was a kid? I don't know if you guys remember my childhood, but you're similar in age. Irreconcilable differences, you remember that term? I asked Will, he said, never heard of it, because that's because he's younger than I am by 10 years or so, 15 years or so, sorry. <laughs> All righty. But those of you that are older, sorry, Dan, I didn't mean Yes, sorry. Irreconcilable differences, you may recall. Marriage was never intended to just come to an end when two parts said, you know what, we've grown, we're different people. Let's just move on here with a friendly divorce or something like that. Those that enter into marriage are to hold that union with high esteem. And it's for this reason that marriage should not be ever ever entered into lightly. Should never be entered into lightly. 
People should realize what they're getting into. A fourth point. Jesus confirms that divorce is permitted to occur because of sexual morality. But notice this. He's not commanding that it has to occur because of sexual immorality. Jesus, Jesus says this in verses 8 and 9. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. If a husband or a wife can forgive their spouse for marital infidelity, then they should forgive their spouse for that sin. However, the reality is that such a breach in the relationship may damage the relationship beyond repair. And an instance where the offended spouse cannot recover from the offense against them, Jesus makes a concession for the permissibility of divorce. Again, however, forgiveness and reconciliation is the ideal. But because of the hardness of our hearts, Jesus recognizes that that may not be able to occur. Now let me make one more point. Marital infidelity, I'm making a lot more, by the way, in this issue. Marital infidelity is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. And what I mean by that is if, you know, I'm the offended person and, and uh, my wife, I can't even say this, it's just unthinkable, but she were to be unfaithful and I've chosen to forgive her, I can't take that marital infidelity and put it in my pocket and then 10 years from now, my wife burns the toast or something and I'll say, well, I got my get-out-of-jail-free card, you're out of here. If I choose to forgive my wife, I choose to forgive my wife and I move on from there. Now, I do understand that there is a process of forgiveness. And a person could say, you know what, I'm going to work toward forgiving. And they work toward it and work toward it. And the pain and the hurt and the breach of trust and all that went with that uh, infidelity just continues to wear at the person and they can't let it go. Then, you know, a year goes by, two years go by, divorce may be an option in that particular case, I believe Jesus suggests here. But God's heart when we offer, when he gives us this concession, is to address the tendencies of man's heart. That I, we can't forgive certain things, it seems. It's not to give us some legal loophole to get out in the future. Now, Jesus makes a final point, a fifth point, on marriage and divorce from this par- passage, and that has to do with remarrying following a divorce. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. A person that divorces without biblical grounds for that divorce and then marries another person afterward, according to Jesus, commits adultery. Since their former marriage was not dissolved on biblical grounds, in God's eyes, that couple is still married. And therefore, for them to get involved with another person in a marriage-type relationship will be to commit adultery. Now, of course, all of this raises some questions as to what are biblical grounds for divorce. I believe the scripture gives two biblical grounds for divorce. Number one is what we're seeing here, which has to do with sexual morality or adultery. Again, that a couple that experiences this breach of covenant, they don't have to divorce. But as I said earlier, if the offended person can't get past such an egregious sin, and that's exactly what it is, an egregious sin against them, then Jesus says in that case divorce is permissible. That's the first reason, first biblical ground for divorce. The second biblical ground for divorce, the Apostle Paul presents in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So would you please turn there in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I, I don't recall, quite frankly, but I'm sure when we were looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, we discussed this at that time. But in the context of what we're looking at today, I think it's good for us to go back and consider it again. I'm going to read verses 10 through 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, comma, not the Lord, That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother 
is not enslaved. Now, there's a lot here, so I want to go through these verses, kind of walking our way. So we begin with verse 10. Notice in verse 10 that Paul says this, To the married I give this charge. Then in parentheses he says, Not I, but the Lord. Now contrast that phrase, not I, but the Lord, with the statement that he makes in verse 12, where he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now at first glance, that's kind of troubling for us to read. Wait a minute, Paul. Is Paul just making stuff up? You know, he's just throwing stuff out there. Why do I have to follow stuff if Paul's saying, but the Lord's not saying it? Well, the reality is this. The fact that it's in Scripture means the Lord is saying it as well. What Paul is doing here is differentiating verse 10 and the commandment that follows with verse 12 and the commandment that will follow. In verse 10, that first statement is a statement that has already been introduced to people of faith. It's something that is already found in the Old Testament. The Lord has already spoken clearly on that particular issue. That's the first statement. The second statement that Paul is going to introduce is a statement that is not found in the Old Testament, but it is introduced to us in the New Testament. That's why Paul is saying, I'm saying this to you, not the Lord. That is, you can't go into your concordance and find where the Lord has said this to you. I'm introducing this to you. So in verses 10 and 11, Paul once again confirms the sanctity of marriage. That's his purpose there, stating that a a wife should not separate. Now, that term separate, we have legal terms for divorce and separation, and they mean different things. Here, in the context of the, the day and age that they're writing, the word separate means to divide. It means to put asunder. Remember that phrase from the mar- wedding that you've gone to? It means to depart from. It means divorce is what it means there. So don't get in your mind that it's talking about the separation that we think of in our particular culture. It's talking about divorce. And so Paul confirms the importance of marriage, the sacredness of marriage, stating a wife shouldn't separate from her husband, Neither should a husband divorce his wife. It's to be held in high esteem. Marriage is to be honored, he's saying. It should not be entered into lightly, and neither should the bond that is formed be put asunder either. That's verses 10 and 11. Now, verse 12, Paul introduces a new command as it relates to the uh, believer in the area of marriage. And again, I'll read the verses, 12 and 13. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever he, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, a new phenomenon is, was going to occur in the New Testament that would not have occurred in the Old Testament. And that's the possibility of a person becoming a believer and having a spouse That is an unbeliever. In the Old Testament, both parties, almost without exception, both parties in the marriage would have been Jews, religiously, culturally, nationally, and thus it would not have applied, or the verses would have applied to them equally. Here, though, however, in the New Testament, that idea with both parties were always going to be Jews together, both kind of um, yoked the same together, that doesn't carry over into the New Testament as in the case of the example that Paul presents where one partner is a born-again follower of Christ while the spouse is not. Now, Paul doesn't clarify it here, but we do know from the full counsel of Scripture, which makes this clear, that this is not a case of a believer marrying an unbeliever, but rather of a person becoming a believer after they have already been married. All right, so this argument that Paul's talking about is not, well, I'm an unbeliever, or excuse me, I'm a believer and I married an unbeliever and now we're having issues and I'm thinking about getting a divorce. That's not what Paul's addressing here. What Paul's addressing is two unbelievers get married and then one of them gets saved in the process. That's what Paul's looking at. The situation Paul's addressing is a person who comes to know Christ after they have already been married. And Paul's instructions in that scenario or if the unbelieving wife is content to live with the believing husband, to remain in that place of marriage, then he should or she should remain with him, and vice versa. So similarly, if he sees the unbelieving husband is content to live with the believing wife, she should not divorce him. When a person comes into a relationship with Christ, the norm in that person's life should be a significant change in that person's personhood 
and in their character. Things that they previously enjoyed oftentimes change. Places they previously enjoyed going may no longer appeal to them. Goals and dreams that they once had for their life and they shared with their partner may have now completely lost their luster. A person changes after they're born anew. Paul would say in another place, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And because of those changes, it's quite possible that the unbelieving spouse might conclude, I'm out of here. This new husband of mine, this new wife of mine, she's a wacko. This is not what I signed up for. I'm divorcing you. And they may go on. We have some folks in our congregation that have dealt with that, where their spouses left them after they became born again and began walking with the Lord. And so Paul understands that and observing that, that this has been the case, might be the case for some of the believers there in Corinth, he says in verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved. In the case where the unbelieving partner separates from the believing partner, Paul says the believer is no longer bound to the marriage. Now, I think it's an unfortunate translation there in uh, verse 15 where he says enslaved to describe marriage. I think it's kind of unfortunate. It doesn't really give the most pleasant view of what marriage is. The, The point is bound by the covenant. And so Paul here is presenting a second biblical ground for divorce. Number one, we said, was marital infidelity. And number two here is this idea of abandonment. Those are the two biblical grounds for divorce for the follower of Christ. Incompatibility is not a biblical ground for divorce. Not loving one another anymore is not a biblical ground. We've simply grown apart from one another is not a biblical ground for divorce. Now, let me make this point. I do think there are reasons why a couple may need to separate for a bit. And I'm using that term as we use the term, legally separate from one another for a period of time. I think there are reasons we may counsel for that to take place. For instance, we might counsel a woman to separate from a physically violent husband for her safety and protection while we work with the husband to get him saved or to start living like he's saved and, just, and keep the wife safe. We would still work for reconciliation between the two, and we'd be praying for change in the husband, but for safety purposes of the wife, we might encourage physical separation for a period of time. We might counsel a husband or a wife to separate from their spouse if they're engaging in harmful activity. That might bring physical or or perhaps even emotional or spiritual harm to a child or to children. And so an example of that might be if a spouse is bringing drugs or all that goes along with drugs or a dealer of some sorts, whatever it may be, and all of that is coming into the home. That's not a safe place for kids to be, and it's probably not a safe place for the spouse to be as well. In a case like that, separation would likely be warranted. There are likely other reasons as well, sure where legal separation might need to be pursued. But even in those scenarios, our goal as believers and our goal as spiritual leaders, when these issues are brought to us here in the church, would to be this, to see that the marriage that God holds in such high esteem remain, and even beyond that, that it become the type of marriage that God would have for each of us. Now, I know this is not an easy topic. I know that there are many of us in this room that are divorced, and maybe we divorced for reasons that were not biblical. I know there's some of us in this room that are contemplating divorce, maybe from an unsaved uh, spouse, or maybe both sides are saved, and they're contemplating divorce. I understand that. Some of us here are divorced and contemplating remarriage. And so these passages obviously speak to you as well. The Lord holds marriage in very high esteem, and as believers, we are to do so as well. Jesus makes it very clear, notice, and the disciples pick up on it. Look at verse 10. The disciples said, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to, be, to marry at all. But Jesus said to him, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, 
And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one who is able to receive this, receive it. So growing tired of your spouse is not a reason for a divorce. And he's a slob and has never learned to clean up after himself is not a reason for divorce. And I found somebody better is not a reason. When a couple marries, they enter into a holy bond that is sanctioned by heaven. And so notice the disciples say, well, then, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They say essentially, well, maybe it would be better if we don't marry at all. Now, I think their statement makes it clear that they understand just how highly Jesus views marriage and that there are very few exceptions that he would accept that would allow for a couple to divorce. I think another thing it demonstrates about themselves is just how low of a view of they have of themselves. And so they have a high view of marriage and a low view of themselves. And what I mean by that is they realize, well, then this is going to be hard. If there's no way out of this thing, I don't think I can make it. Maybe it would be better if I didn't get married at all. Marriage, even good marriages, are not easy. Marriage takes commitment. Marriages take sacrifice. They take a willingness to forgive. And I think the thing that isn't emphasized enough to uh, sing like um, fiancés, whatever they call engaged couples and things like that, what's not emphasized enough to engage couples, marriage takes a whole lot of death to self. A lot of times we think, whoo, can't wait to get married. Everything's going to be wonderful when I get married. Well, you learn some things about yourself as you're learning things about your spouse right away when you get married. You get back from that honeymoon, and, you know, the first week is like, it's so fun here together. It's my best friend, and we love each other. Two weeks, three weeks, a month, a few months goes by, and things start getting on your nerves. And you're like, hey, hey, in the Greg life, we don't do it that way, you know. (laughs) We're going to have to make some changes or whatever. And you begin to die to self a lot where you begin realizing, you know what, the way that Greg has always done it may be fine, but it It's not the way that it has to be done. We can do it the way this lady wants to do it, I guess, kind of thing. And you have to go through this process. And I'll say this. If you're not willing to do those things, then don't get married. Don't even bother with it because you're going to have a miserable marriage. And so if you're thinking about getting married here, don't do it. (laughs) Unless, Unless you're ready. If you're not currently married, make sure that you think and you pray very long and hard before you do so, that you're really ready to get into the covenant that you're about to make. And the disciples, they seem to understand that. And so, again, in so many words, they said, well, then maybe we shouldn't get married at all. Now, you have to admire the disciples. The disciples, who rather than risking sinning in the state of marriage, being miserable and divorcing and doing something they shouldn't do, rather, rather than risking that, choose instead to remain in the state of being single. Really, the purpose is to keep themselves from sinning. That's why they suggest it. The problem is this. Remaining single does not guarantee that they will remain free from sin while single. Does that make sense? And so they're trying to avoid the sin of divorce, but there's other sins you got to deal with when you're single. And so you know, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy you don't want to sin, but that doesn't mean you're going to be free from the tendency towards sin over here. Singleness is not for everyone. Jesus says again in so many words, remaining, he says this, remaining single could work, he says to them. Yeah, I guess that could work. You could remain single, but then he adds this, not everyone could receive, can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. Singleness is not for everyone. Singleness may be for some. Jesus was single. We know that, not because marriage is evil, but Jesus was single for other purposes. Paul became single after coming to Christ. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be a married Jewish man. And so Paul was a married Jewish man at some point in time in his life, if he was a member of the Sanhedrin. But as Paul goes on later on after becoming a Christian, Paul will write about the fact that he is single. And the only thing that we can deduce, I guess there's a couple things we can deduce. Number one is his wife died or something. But the other thing that we can deduce is this, that his wife said, you know what, you're a kook. You seem to be on the fast track of, you know, being the most powerful religious leader amongst the Jews. And now you're on the outskirts of the Jews and you're running after this Jesus fellow. I'm done with you. That to me seems like the more logical reason. 
But either way, Paul will write about singleness in the Scripture, and he'll discuss it from the perspective of, hey, if you can do it, great. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6-9, through 9, Paul talks about it. Notice this also from Matthew 19. Singleness is a gift. Oh boy, we're running out of time. Singleness is a gift. That's why Jesus says, notice there, to whom it is given. Singleness provides a person with all sorts of opportunities that a married person may not have. It provides them with time. It provides them oftentimes with more resources that a married person and a person with a family might not be able to have the resources or have the time or the freedom, so to speak, because they have to care for the family. It's not a bad thing that a married person or a person with a family has obligations. That kind of goes with the territory, but nonetheless, it's the reality of things. And so, yes, singleness may afford a person to wholly devote themselves to service. But again, it's not for everyone. Jesus goes on to explain, look at in verse 12, he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, eunuchs were single men that served in the king's palace, oftentimes among the king's wife or wives. And some of these men, as Jesus says here, were born eunuchs. That is, without the ability or the desire for sexual intimacy, and if they're working with the king's wife or wives, not a threat to those particular women to steal them. That's one type of eunuchs. They became eunuchs. They were made eunuchs. Or excuse me, uh, they were born that way. The next group is some of the men's, men were made eunuchs. And I'll let you use your own imagination as to how that happened. Alrighty, but oftentimes in war, that's what happened. Those that were captured were made eunuchs. And then there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus addresses that toward the end there of verse 12. And here, Jesus is using the term figuratively to describe the person that is choosing a life of singleness so as to be in further and unhindered service to the king. Remember, eunuchs were in service to the king. Well, here now you have a person that has made themselves a eunuch in service to the king of kings. Not mandated, for anybody, and I believe this is where the Catholic Church has gotten wrong, or one significant way where they have gotten wrong, where they have mandated singleness on those that want to serve God, whether it be the priest or the nun or whomever it may be. And I think at least in part, it is more than likely contributed to some of the scandals the church has endured through uh, the millennia, really. So singleness is not mandated, but it may be an option. And so there are some single folks that are here, and perhaps you're just thinking, well, when I get older, I'll get married, because that's what everybody does, or whatever it may be. You may want to pray about never getting married, because it gives you an opportunity to serve the Lord without having to worry about a family. How am I going to provide for them? Or what about my kids? Or what about, you know, sending them, you know, to school or whatever it may be and having to earn a living for them? You just pick up and you go. And so singleness may be an option for some that they might choose to exercise so that they can serve heaven even more effectively. Again, it's not for everyone, but if you're given God's grace for that calling, then you should use it for God's glory. Now, as we consider these things, we've had some tough messages the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Maybe not for you, but for me, these were challenging things to consider, knowing the need to be sensitive, but yet be true to the Scripture. And I think the Lord has given us a lot to consider in this week. Things like this. Should we get married or remain single for whomever that applies? Things like do we as a church and as a body of believers, do we esteem marriage as highly as the Lord esteems marriage? Things like are we willing to do the hard work of loving and sacrificing and forgiving and dying to self that marriage requires? You know, we talk about meditating on the scripture. I'll just end with this. It's a, it's a weird term in the Old Testament. It, the term there that we translate in English, meditating, it means to chew the cud. And it refers to a, a cattle or cow, whatever it may be, as they eat their grass or their food or whatever, they kind of eat it, they swallow it down into one of their stomachs, and then they barf it back up and chew on it again, and then they swallow it again, and they do that four times. They have four stomachs, and they do that. And so this idea of 
bringing it back up and chewing on it again, that's where we get this term, that's where we get this idea of meditating on things. And so I would just encourage you with a passage like this, or any passage really, you read in the morning or that you come here and you pick up at, at service or whatever, take some time, don't walk out the door and forget about this until you need it later on in the future, but chew on it and bring it back to remembrance and consider these things and those questions that I addressed at the end. Ask those questions of yourself and ask the Lord to search out your heart on these matters. Amen? All right, we'll stop there. Father, thank you for these words. Lord, we are grateful that you speak just about to every area of our lives, Lord. And even those areas where you may not speak directly to, Lord, your, your word gives us such wisdom and such insight to apply the word to those areas. Lord, we're so grateful. And so, Father, we pray now Lord, for those in our body that are considering what their future may hold, should they get married or remain single? And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to their heart about the areas of giftedness that you've given them. And, Lord, if uh, it is a life of singleness that they may serve you unhindered, then, Lord, bless them in their endeavors and give them the courage to walk, Lord, according to that lifestyle. Father, we pray for those here Lord, that are married to an unbelieving spouse. And there's a part of them where it would be just so much easier if I could get rid of this one and get a good Christian one, everything would be great. And yet your word speaks otherwise. Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith and the courage and the strength to remain in the place that you have for them and to be that light. And Lord, we ask that you would convict the heart of the unbelieving spouse and you'd save them. Father, we pray for those here that have been thinking about divorce. And Lord, just considering everyone else around them gets divorced, Lord, the, the rate is in the 40% in our culture and even higher for second and third marriages. And it's just sort of the norm of our society. And we've convinced ourselves in so many ways that it's the only option ahead of us if things aren't going well. Lord, I pray that you would breathe life within their hearts through this word today. And you'd give them the courage to look to you for strength daily. So, Father, we love you. And we're thankful that as a good father, you share with us things that aren't necessarily the easiest for us to receive. But, Lord, as we prayed last week, we know that you're a good, good father and that you love us. And sometimes that means that we have to take some medicine that doesn't taste so good. So, Lord, bless your word as we continue to mull it over, we pray. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.